What would you say if I told you that there was a political commentator who was so stupid that he thought the Constitution could be unconstitutional? I'd say, come again? And then I'd laugh because I said, come. But thank God that's not the case, huh? Well, you say that, but... And the weirdest thing about the Electoral College is the fact that if it wasn't specifically in the Constitution for the presidency, it would be unconstitutional. Now, that clip isn't new. Uh, That came from a segment that aired almost a year ago. And after it happened, the internet blew up with people who were rightfully mocking Chris Hayes for making a statement that was not only reasonable to mock, but a statement that in fact would have been unreasonable not to mock. Now, the problem is that the conservatives who uh, talked about that piece when it came out got so wrapped up uh, in their usual, you know, we're a constitutional republic, not a democracy circle jerk, that no one really noticed that that line may have been actually the least stupid and dangerous part of the entire segment. So uh, I guess at this point, uh, debunking the substantive issues on this video has become my duty. (laughs) Duty. Yeah, duty. (laughs) Duty. <laughs> Diarrhea. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am Lockheed Liberal, and I want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you're new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, first, I have a quick personal update for you guys. Uh, Anyone who is familiar with me, Uh, probably knows that I really hate uh, social media sites. I don't really have any. Uh, But recently, uh, I have begun using one uh, that I've become very impressed with. This is a site called BitChute, and it's it's another video site. It actually is very similar to YouTube in its look uh, and its feel. However, uh, with BitChute, uh, they have uh, really kind of a philosophy of uh, sort of a free expression free exchange of ideas kind of attitude, which is fantastic. Um, and they also operate on a decentralized network. So uh, that way there's there's no central hub for uh, content to be pulled down, even if uh, someone tried to take it down. Um, not that I'm worried about that, but it's just, uh, you know, uh, people do get disappeared from YouTube every now and then, uh, as is YouTube's won't. Uh, and so it's just... Uh, you know, if my site ever goes away one day uh, here on YouTube, you always know where to find me over on BitChute. And if you just want to go check me out over there anyway and see what they're about, I encourage you to just uh, go take a look. They're a really interesting site. Uh, there is a link to them down in the description. Now, uh, for today, we're going to be discussing the Electoral College, the National Popular Vote Movement, and the so-called one-person, one-vote doctrine. And we're also going to be discussing why Chris Hayes may be the most maliciously dishonest political commentator in the country. So let's get started with a look at the Electoral College. Uh, Because uh, this is a system that is so familiar, I think people actually take it for granted, if that makes sense. Uh, So I think it may be worth doing a quick quick, uh, Con Law 101 to look at how this body functions, vis-a-vis Article 2 and the 12th Amendment. Now, there is uh, a lot of interesting avenues to explore uh, when talking about uh, the Electoral College uh, having to do with the uh, debates that happened at the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 and looking at the different proposals that were made. Uh, We had, uh, for example, James Madison and Edmund Randolph had put forward a proposal where they had wanted Congress to pick the president 
Uh, we had James Wilson, who favored a national popular vote. Uh, there was Charles Pinckney from South Carolina, who favored having an election where the state governors would elect the president. And then we had the system that we ended up with, uh, which was a result of a committee that was known as the Grand Committee, uh, which was really led uh, by a gentleman named Governor Morris, who was a delegate from New York. And Morris is known as the draftsman of the Constitution uh, because he, uh, well, yeah, he, he took the lead on so many different aspects of it, uh, including this one. He was the one who presented it uh, to the Philadelphia Convention and kind of uh, argued for why they should use this system. Now, because I have uh, a lot of other stuff to get to today in this video, I'm not going to be able to do a quick uh, and, and deep dive into that. Um, or also, unfortunately, even a look at the ratification debates over the uh, Electoral College, which uh, you can get a lot of good information from looking at the Philadelphia Convention and what they were thinking. But when you want to understand what the words on the page actually mean, the best place to go is to the ratification debates because that is where you find the meaning that the public understood the Constitution to have, and that is the most important meaning that you can look for. So, um, if anyone would like a video about that stuff, uh, it's really interesting, and uh, if you would, just leave me, uh, well, uh, just subscribe to the channel real quick, smash that like button, and then when you do that, then leave me a comment, uh, just saying that you would be interested in a future video, uh, talking about the Electoral College and just some of the weird, neat, little odd information, uh, little kind of fun stories about it, uh, going back to the Philadelphia Convention and the ratification debates, and I would be happy to oblige. Now, in the meantime, uh, I had something that is every bit as good as that. Um, if you look down in the description for this video today, you're going to find just a treasure trove of great articles. Uh, talking about all of those different topics, the uh, different suggestions that were put forward for systems of voting or choosing the president, uh, why people favored one, not the other, what the original meaning was, all of that good stuff. And uh, I I've got a ton of articles down there uh, from some really great constitutional scholars. I, I know for sure I've got a couple articles by Eugene Volokh. Uh, I got Rob Nadelson, Ilya Shapiro. Uh, Mike Meharry, and probably a few of my own down there, and probably a couple other people I'm forgetting at the moment, but uh, just a lot of really, really good information. I encourage you to go check them all out uh, after watching this video. Now, um, I'm actually going to uh, quickly turn it over to Professor Richard F. Duncan. He is a constitutional scholar from the Nebraska College of Law, and he's got a fantastic video uh, explaining the history behind the Electoral College vis-a-vis -vis Article 2, Section 1, and the amendment that came uh, to the Constitution in the form of the 12th Amendment. So I'm going to turn that over to him. Uh, check this out. The 12th Amendment gets no respect. Indeed, most constitutional law scholars would have a difficult time explaining what it does and why it was needed in the first place. But I want to tell you how a flaw in the Constitution resulted in two disastrous presidential elections and how the 12th Amendment solved a technical defect in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution. The text of Article 2, Section 1 states that members of the Electoral College shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons. In other words, under the original Constitution, there was not a separate vote for president and vice president. Instead, each elector voted for two persons, and the person with the majority of votes would be president and the runner-up would be vice president. However, if there was a tie between two candidates obtaining a majority vote, the election would be decided in the House of Representatives, with each state delegation having one vote. So each state, not each member of Congress, but each state, got one vote in the House to break the tie for president. The founders didn't anticipate the development of political parties. And that caused a bit of a disaster in the 1796 and 1800 presidential elections. In 1796, the Federalist candidate, John Adams, came in first and was elected president. His running mate was Thomas Pinckney, the former governor of South Carolina. When the Electoral College cast their votes, however, 
too many Federalist electors withheld their second vote from Pinckney to make sure that he didn't tie with Adams. And that led to the Democratic-Republican candidate Thomas Jefferson becoming Adams' vice president instead of Pinckney. And then in 1800, Jefferson and Burr both ran as Democratic-Republicans with the expectation that Jefferson would be the president and Burr would be his vice president. For this to work, the Democratic-Republican electors needed to cast the first of their two electoral votes for Jefferson. Then, to prevent a tie, one elector needed to withhold his second vote for Burr. However, no one remembered to withhold that second vote for Burr, and the result was a tie between Jefferson and Burr in the Electoral College. The election then went to the House of Representatives, where it took six days and 36 ballots before Jefferson was elected president and Burr vice president. Article 2, Section 1 had created a trap for the unwary, and it was so disastrous that I think the nation had no choice but to amend the Constitution to avoid that problem ever happening again. Shortly after the catastrophic election of 1800, the 12th Amendment was proposed by Congress and ratified by the states. The 12th Amendment fixes both the Adams-Jefferson problem and the Jefferson-Burr problem by requiring separate votes for president and vice president. The 12th Amendment does that by saying that each presidential elector will cast not votes for two persons, but will cast two ballots, one ballot for the presidency, one ballot for the vice presidency. Whoever wins the presidential ballot is president. Whoever wins the vice presidential ballot is vice president. Though everyone agreed that there was a problem with Article 2, Section 1, there were still a few who opposed the passage of the 12th Amendment, such as Governor Morris of New York who argued that electors should recognize the importance of giving both votes to men fit for the first office. Hamilton, however, demolished this argument with a single sentence, retorting, one such fact as the late election of 1800 is worth a thousand theories. The Twelfth Amendment isn't very controversial, but it did have a significant effect on the presidential election process. By correcting the technical defect of Article 2, Section 1, it has ensured that the disastrous elections of 1796 and 1800 have never seen an encore performance. So what exactly is the controversy? Well, the Electoral College is an issue that becomes hotly contested from time to time uh, across the country for various reasons. Uh, it just it, every now and then appears in the public mind as something to get pissed off about. Uh, most recently, this happened following the loss of Hillary Clinton in 2016 and the sort of uh, reactionary recoil of her and her supporters who had said that Donald Trump's supposed refusal to accept the election results, uh, be they what they may, made him and his supporters uniquely unqualified to take office and uniquely undeserving to win the election. Those were her actual words, uniquely unqualified to take office. Of course, uh, Hillary and her followers uh, then took the loss in stride and spent the next four years refusing to accept the election results. Now, this has led since 2016 to a resurgence in support uh, for people who want to uh, create what is called a National Popular Vote Compact. And this is an agreement between states uh, where they would all agree essentially to uh, give all of their electoral votes collectively to the National Popular Vote winner, rather than uh, each state giving them to the candidate who won that state. Now, it's really just an end run around the Constitution uh, and the need to amend the Constitution to change it. Uh, the most uh, recent addition to the National Popular Vote uh, Compact came in 2019, uh, when Colorado became the 13th state to agree to, to voluntarily uh, abide by this agreement, uh, when and if enough states get on board with it, uh, that the total number of requisite votes of these states who are party to this compact reaches that 270 electoral vo uh, vote threshold, uh, which you need to win the election. Uh, at that point, 
uh, there, once you have enough states to do that, then there's really no point but for everyone else to just pile in uh, anyway because uh, their votes don't matter anymore at that point. So uh, Colorado was the uh, 13th state to agree to this, uh, and their addition brings the current number of electoral votes uh, who are currently uh, signed on to this National Popular Vote Compact to 181. Now, this means that we are well on our way uh, and that it may only be a few more years now before we find this compact having the numbers to put it into practice. Now, there is a number of reasons why states are signing on to this compact and giving up their states electoral sovereignty uh, and would choose to sign on to this compact. Uh, I can come up with three reasons why, precisely three reasons why states would choose to sign up to this. The first reason, politics. The second reason, politics. And the third reason, fucking politics. That's really, that's all it is. Nothing more. Now, this issue has really become a clarion call for the left, especially, who truly believe that they can get a permanent advantage in the presidential election if they can just push this through. So, let's consider uh, what is wrong with the national popular vote. Now, I'm sure by this point, you are thinking to yourself, well, you know, everything that you have discussed so far makes absolutely perfect sense, and you are just as correct as you always are about everything every time we listen to you, just as we have come to expect from you, Bob. But I still don't understand why you don't see the national popular vote movement as a good thing. After all, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, the worst-case scenario is a slightly elevated risk of genital warts and ovarian cancer, to which all I can say is that you are mixing up the NPV with HPV. But the MPV movement uh, has built a strong and vocal movement to do away with the institution uh, of the Electoral College uh, and instead select the president based on whoever receives the most total votes. Supporters of abolishing the Electoral College claim that establishing a system based on a national popular vote would be more democratic. Uh, as a uh, moveon.org petition put it, and this is a quote, one person, one vote to determine one leader who is supposed to answer to all the people of the country, end quote. Now, this seems plausible on the surface. It really does. The president serves as the leader of a nation, right? Why shouldn't he or she be elected by that nation, uh, you know, altogether in a single national popular vote? The fundamental answer to that question is the United States is not a nation. Uh, now, if you have made it this far uh, and you haven't seen the past videos uh, that I recommended you go watch earlier from myself, uh, where I was talking about federalism and the Senate, uh, you may want to consider doing that now. Uh, I'm going to be proceeding, uh, assuming that you know some information in that video that is relevant to uh, this video. Uh, and so if you haven't watched it yet, this could create a bit of a uh, gap of information required. But the United States uh, was founded as a federated republic. That is a confederacy of sovereign states who came together to form a union. A nation implies a single, unified political society. However, when they declared independence, the 13 co colonies became 13 sovereign nations in their own right. Now, they did quickly band together into a confederation, but this is not the same thing as a nation. Now, St. George Tucker, the great uh, American jurist, uh, who uh, in his 1804 constitutional treatise known as Tucker's Blackstone, uh, distinguished between a national government and a federated republic such as ourselves, and this is how he described the difference. A national government is a government of the people of a single state or nation. 
united as a community by what is termed the social compact and possessing complete and perfect supremacy over person and thing, so far as they can be made the lawful objects of civil government. A federal government is distinguished from a national government by its being the government of a community of independent and sovereign states united by compact. This is why no one ever refers to our country as the United State. The reason the Electoral College matters is because, unlike a national popular vote, the Electoral College reflects the federal nature of the United States constitutional system, and it is properly seen as a system, meaning that every part of it has to be in good working order for the entire system as a whole to be in good working order. So when we come across douchebags like a Lawrence Lessig or a John Nichols who will go around saying stupid shit such as the following. I mean, it is a bad thing that the loser wins. I mean, that's just not the way right. a, an election is supposed to work. So that's happened twice in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, and uh, it happened 100 years before that. And it's going to happen more frequently going forward. We can show that. Uh, we have a new president who in most countries in the world would not be president. Because in most countries in the world, the person who wins the popular vote becomes president. And remember, I did win more than 3 million votes. Now, talking about the loser being the winner, telling us that other countries have different elections, or incessantly measuring victories by completely irrelevant metrics. This is another manifestation of something that I have described before uh, as the tyranny of cliches. And this is a term uh, I have stolen from uh, Jonah Goldberg's great book by the same name. Now, look, I'm not saying there are no valid arguments for abolishing the Electoral College. What I am saying is that arguments that pretend that we have a national government and that a popular vote is somehow more fair and that you argue that we are supposed to be a government of majoritarian democracy, none of those are among a list of valid arguments for abolishing the Electoral College because none of those things are true. Now, these are, and I mean this, these really are the very best arguments the left has to offer on this debate. And their non-arguments are every bit as pedantic and irrelevant as the conservative non-arguments that we often see on offer, such as I was uh, spent a good chunk of my last video making fun of their, their weird little insistence that we are a constitutional republic, not a democracy. Um, now, um, I, I'm sure that Chris Hayes would not have done a whole segment about this topic if he didn't have that same argument of substance hiding somewhere between his ignorance and condescension. So why don't we move on to uh, that segment of the Chris Hayes show that we are going to be breaking down next. Well, now I think we are ready to watch this uh, Chris Hayes segment on voting. Uh, as to not conflict with fair use, I have cut the show up into segments so I can add commentary along the way. Uh, but uh, I did use the entire segment. I just cut it up into small pieces. However, I just wanted to let you guys know uh, if you want to watch the whole piece for yourself. And actually, I encourage you to go and watch the whole piece uh, just start to finish for yourself from the Chris Hayes segment, uh, you can find a link in the description uh, to where you can watch the full segment of the show online. Now, let's have some fun. So um, the Republicans this week uh, were attacking Democratic Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And in their defense, they do that every week. Um, I don't know why she drives them nuts for some reason. Yeah, it's not like you see uh, the Democrats childishly launching attacks on prominent Republicans every single week, whether there's a reason to or not. Deutschland. 
attacking her because she went after an institution that has become kind of sacred, I think, to Republicans, and that's the Electoral College. Um, AOC's argument was basically that the Electoral College unfairly diminishes the voting power of some Americans and therefore is incompatible with our basic democratic commitments. That was the argument. Republicans flipped out. All right. They went after her very hard. Uh, Trump TV did a bunch of segments about it. Uh, uh, the Trump campaign. There was a, f- a freshman Republican congressman, a guy by the name of Dan Crenshaw from Texas. Uh, he tweeted at her that we live in a republic, not a democracy. You probably heard that before. Uh, and that, and this is a quote: "51 percent doesn't get to boss around 49 percent." We'll talk. Dun dun dun. Now, I only have two very minor issues with that opening piece, and I really don't mean to nitpick here, and I hope that's not what I'm going to be doing or turn into some kind of uh, technicalitarian, uh, but I think it's just quickly worth noting that these two very minor uh, issues that I have are, first, everything Dan Crenshaw said was wrong. Second, everything Chris Hayes said was wrong. Minor details for sure but worth pointing out all the same. Now, I recently did a video uh, that is uh, titled American Constitutional Republicanism, uh, and I will put a link to that video right now in a little card in the corner of this video, uh, right about now, in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, I suggest you go watch that video, because uh, in that video, I spent a good chunk of time explaining uh, the issue that I have with not so much with Dan Crenshaw in particular, but with the argument that he is using here. This is uh, uh, the whole we are a constitutional republic, not a democracy argument, which is, uh, and again, I think I talked about this already. Um, this is really just uh, a non argument. This is an example of what uh, Jonah Goldberg refers to as the tyranny of cliches. Cliches like these are a way to win arguments on the cheap. It is a means of defending principles you haven't thought through or perhaps only vaguely support. And even under the most charitable of interpretations of the speaker's sincerity of belief, when using these terms, it still doesn't matter because mounting cliches like these are a way to avoid arguments, not make them. Now, this phraseology, uh, specifically this whole we're a constitutional republic, not a democracy uh, bit, uh, is most often heard in uh, conservatives and even sometimes libertarian circles, and it is often uh, invoked any time the word democracy is used in a favorable context. Uh, And the claim is generally invoked when a user... uh, says what when they mean to convey one of the two following things either one i don't like your idea and since it involves aspects that are democratic or majoritarian i'll invoke the republic not a democracy claim to discredit your idea or two that a majority of the population appears to support this idea so i will invoke the republic not a democracy claim to illustrate that I think the majority should be ignored. Now, look, Dan Crenshaw is just one of uh, innumerable people uh, who uh, has been criticized for, uh, who has criticized for calling for an abolishment to the uh, electoral college by saying that calling for an end to the Electoral College is somehow being for democracy. And those who want to keep the Electoral College 
see themselves as advocating a more preferable Republican style of government. And I mean small r Republican, not the party. I mean the the uh, system of government. Now, in practice, the argument really boils down to this. Essentially, you can be for Republican government or you can be for mob rule, also known as democracy. Now, there are many good reasons to support the use of the Electoral College. But the claim that we must support the Republican Electoral College, again, small r Republican, I mean the type of government, not the political party, support the small r Republican Electoral College on the one hand, or we must advocate for mob rule on the other is not a valid reason to support the Electoral College. The use of this republic, not a democracy claim here, also illustrates uh, the laziness that is typically employed by its usage. Like almost everyone who uh, denounces democracy in favor of republican government in this context, Crenshaw will try and claim uh, as his evidence that this is the case, uh, that this is what James Madison said in Federalist Number 10, where he defines uh, republics and pure democracies. Now, I have a link uh, in the description to Federalist Number 10. Uh, I encourage you all to go there uh, and read it. And because if you read it through for yourselves, uh, as well as, uh, as I said, you should go back and watch my past video called American Constitutional Republicanism, uh, because... I, I dealt with this topic specifically. I'm assuming you have an understanding of what I talked about in that video, but it's also just a really good video, so go watch it. What are you waiting for? Go watch it. All right, anyway, moving on. Um. So, uh, yeah, so Federalist Number 10, uh, Madison defines republic uh, as opposed to a pure democracy. Now, his definition of democracy in Federalist Number 10 uh, is, by his own admission, not a definition that anyone back then or even today would intuitively use. This is Madison's own uh, admission of this right in that paper. His description of democracy does not match the one that is being used by people like Dan Crenshaw. Madison is very clear about this. Now, he defines uh, a democracy as a society uh, consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer to the government in person. He defines a republic as a system of government in which a scheme of representation takes place. This definition of a republic... Uh, is straight from the founders, uh, the people that Dan Crenshaw say that they are referencing. Uh, but our government would not be any less of a republic or any more of a democracy if we abolish the Electoral College for a national popular vote. That is simply not a change that would happen in our government if we got rid of the Electoral College. One does not lead to the other in any sense whatsoever. Now, if you're looking for a more uh, general definition of these two terms, uh, that would have been widely recognized and accepted among those who drafted and ratified the Constitution. Uh, they would have relied on the definitions used by Montesquieu uh, in his system of political taxonomy. Now, he saw a democracy as a sub category of Republican government. So, according to Montesquieu, who is the man who every founder quotes uh, when they are talking about what Republic and democracy mean, and they're talking about it in an objective sense, not James Madison's particular terms that he uses in one Federalist paper for one very particular argument. Montesquieu says very clearly, uh, and this is something he says in his 1748 treatise, Spirit of the Law, 
I, if I remember correctly, I think it is uh, book 11 is where he really gets into his political taxonomy. And he says that uh, Republican forms of government come in two types, aristocratic and democratic. And he only sees democratic government as a subcategory of republicanism. So to Montesquieu, the man who the, uh, the founders and the framers would turn to to define these different types of government, a democracy is, by its very definition, a republic. That's, just, that's beyond question. So, yeah, Dan Crenshaw is entirely wrong. Um, he's an idiot, but it's okay. It's not his fault. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Now, if you want to uh, look at the notes that are taken uh, and later published, by James Madison, where he talks about Montesquieu's political taxonomy, or if you want to read the section of uh, Spirit of the Laws, uh, where Montesquieu breaks this down, uh, Book 11, uh, I'm going to have links in the description, uh, both to uh, a page where you can read uh, James Madison's uh, notes that he took at the Philadelphia Convention, uh, where he just kept, he was outlining uh, sort of the discussion that was going on the whole time, uh, I would recommend taking a look at those, and I would also recommend uh, going and reading. I'd read the whole Spirit of the Laws. It's an amazing book, um, and and it uh, influenced so much more of our government than most people know. But um, at the very least, I would highly recommend you go uh, and check out the section I have highlighted in the description, where it'll take you to Book Eleven, and you can read Montesquieu describe his political taxonomy in his own words. And this, I think, actually has become a, a major fault line. Uh, in fact, one of the most profound fault lines in, our, in the history of American politics. And it's basically this. Do we actually really believe in democracy? Right? The question before us now in the Electoral College question is, are we going to actually live up to the promise of one person, one vote? Now, to be fair, it is not surprising the Republicans are defending the Electoral College. Right? There's a very obvious reason for that. Since 1992, we have had seven presidential elections. Republicans have won the popular vote one time. But they've gotten three presidents out of it. Uh, you may want to check your math there, Chris. Uh, as far as I can see, George W. Bush and Donald Trump makes two presidents. Now, uh, I'm starting to get a good understanding of why Chris doesn't seem to see the flaws uh, in AOC's arguments that the rest of us seem to have no trouble spotting. The economy is going pretty strong, right? There's roughly 4% unemployment, 3.9% unemployment. Well, unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. And this is why even, I, I think, decidedly leftist hacks posing as journalists uh, people from Jake Tapper to Anderson Cooper, even to Lil Fredo Cuomo. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. Have been incapable of hiding their incredulity uh, every time they try and ask a question about a cost-benefit analysis for a Medicare for All program or for the Green New Deal. And the answer that she always seems to give, that she seems to think is a, a precise and complete answer is, someone else will pay for it. As though that provides the required mass to figure everything out. Because uh, who needs to figure out how you're going to pay for it when... The United States of America should not be the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. Also, your wallet is a human right. Gives me that. Which is a very sweet deal if you're the Republican Party. Right? You can see why on, on just basic tactical grounds. 
why the Republican Party would want to continue a system in which they can lose a majority of votes and still get all the powers of the presidency, appointing the Supreme Court justices and judges and signing legislation, vetoing legislation, commanding the army, everything, right? All of that with less votes than the Democrat got. No wonder they like it. But I think there's actually a deeper philosophical thing happening, which is the question of what exactly American democracy is for. And the weirdest thing. Now, there is probably uh, some truth in his notion that the reason Republicans uh, fight to keep uh, the electoral college is owed, at least in part, to Republican political strategy. Uh, I do suggest that strategy and uh, the rhetorical ignorance of the Republic-not-democracy crowd combined account for a large majority uh, of Republicans who, uh, who, who do not uh, support the Electoral College as a matter of a true principled constitutional conservatism. I think those people are few and far between. Um, but my issue with that is that the progressives, such as uh, our good friend Chris Hayes here, uh, are equally transparent uh, that their talk of democratic values is nothing more than a pretext for them to advocate a national popular vote. Why? A matter of democratic political strategy, which is fine. It really is. I have no problem with that. Except for the fact that he is still trying to claim the moral high ground. He can complain Trump won while getting less votes than the Democrat got, and Republicans can claim that Hillary lost because she got less electoral votes than the Republican got. And to uh, assume that yours is the more virtuous uh, position to take or is the right moral choice uh, because it's the one that you want is not make it any more ethical than any other position. If anything, it really actually slants your uh, position into a less ethical direction. It also doesn't take into consideration the radical structural changes that this would cause Uh, to so many other parts of the Constitution, almost entirely for the worse. Now, whether he would recognize what I mean by that and blow it off as irrelevant, or if he never actually considered that point and his actions on a wider scope uh, as far as the ramifications, uh, that uh, either of those two mindsets could be true. It doesn't matter uh, if we are talking about ignorance or sociopathy to them, uh, that people should be wary uh, if they understand the direct link between constitutional construction on the one hand and with the protection of our natural rights and our individual liberties on the other. These two things are absolutely inseparable Now, this is a concept that we will be getting into uh, in great detail just a little bit later, but we're going to keep moving on with the show here. American democracy is for. And the weirdest thing about the Electoral College is the fact that if it wasn't specifically in the Constitution for the presidency, it would be unconstitutional. Here's what I mean by that. Starting in the 1960s, 1961 uh, particularly, the Supreme Court started developing a jurisprudence of one person, one vote, right? The idea is that each individual vote has to carry roughly the same amount of weight as each other individual vote, which is a pretty intuitive concept, but it was not a reality. There are all sorts of crazy representational systems that were created that would not give one person one vote and would disenfranchise certain minorities. You can guess which ones. Mit dem Angriff Steiners wird das alles in Ordnung kommen. Mein Führer, Steiner, Steiner konnte nicht genügend Kräfte für einen Angriff massieren. 
Der Angriff Steiner ist nicht erfolgt. Das war ein Befehl! Der Angriff Steiner war ein Befehl! Wer jeder hat mich belogen, sogar die SS. Die gesamte Generalität ist nicht zweiter als ein Haufen niederträchtiger, treuloser Feiglinge. Mein Führer, ich kann nicht zulassen, dass die Soldaten, die für Sie verbrüchen... Ich Feiglinge! Verräter, Versager! Mein Führer, was Sie da sagen, ist ungeheuerlich. Die Generalität ist das Geschmeiß des deutschen Volkes. Sie ist ohne Ehre! Sie nennen sich Generale, weil Sie Jahre auf Militärakademie zugebracht haben, nur um zu lernen, wie man besser Gabel hält. So, I want to take a, a moment right now um, and uh, ask you to consider the following question for me. And I, I really want you to actually take a second uh, and think about this. There's a reason uh, I'm going to run this kind of little thought experiment with you guys here. So, uh, yeah, based on the description and the explanation of the concept of one person, one vote that you just heard Chris Hayes describe in that segment I just played a moment ago. What do you think that Supreme Court doctrine actually establishes? I mean, what do you think is required by law to meet the standard if you're going off the information that Chris Hayes gave you as a description of what this doctrine means? What does it mean as it has been articulated by the court? I really want you to take a moment, really put some thought into answering that question for yourselves. We will be coming back to this a little later on. But between now and then, uh, I would be uh, very interested to hear uh, any predictions or educated guesses you may have uh, in the comment section. Uh, if you want to leave me a comment and let me know kind of what your best guess is before we get around to it later on. Uh, I would be kind of curious to see what you guys have to say, but you don't have to do that. But just, uh, if nothing else, just kind of come up with an answer in uh, your own mind. You don't have to share it with me if you don't want to. Now, first, uh, I want to take a minute and talk about the idea that something in the Constitution can be unconstitutional. Now, when this segment aired, uh, generally, the only responses that I really saw were people addressing that one particular phrase and not even really discussing it in any serious way. They just took a few minutes to mock that one phrase and then get on with their day. Now, I don't blame them. This is an embarrassingly foolish thing for him to say. And to a certain extent, ridicule can be the most effective way to challenge nonsense like that. As I said at the beginning of the show, not only is that statement one that is reasonable to mock, I think it is a statement that is unreasonable not to mock. I stand by that. However, below the surface layer of stupid, uh, I think that this clip actually is indicative uh, of a growing problem in our political discourse, uh, and that is uh, something that you can find on all sides. This isn't a partisan issue that I'm talking about here. Progressives and conservatives alike can fall into uh, two different modes of thinking, uh, and these are uh, just my own terms for these concepts. I've shared them with you guys on the show in the past, uh, but uh, they're concepts that I call constitutional transference and anachronistic legal interpretation. Now, uh, these are uh, concepts that, as I said, I have discussed on the show before. Uh, and in this case, uh, Chris Hayes is of the opinion that the Electoral College is a bad idea and that simple majoritarian democracy is a good thing. Now, those are both fine, debatable opinions until you start conflating good 
and bad with constitutional and unconstitutional. And that is what I mean by constitutional transference. What I find fascinating here is that, uh, and I, I've never seen this happen so transparently before as it happens in this clip with Chris Hayes. This is really the most blatant, transparent version of this I've ever seen. Um, is that he almost realizes what he is saying is so irrational, but he can't quite make that connection. But that is how someone can come to say, I realize that the constitutional method of election for president is through the Electoral College, so I guess maybe the Electoral College is constitutional because that's literally what the Constitution says. But the Electoral College is bad. As though, despite the clear enumeration in Article 6 of the Constitution that all laws made in pursuance of the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. But uh, he seems to say that, you know, sure, the Constitution may be the supreme law of the land, but my feelings are the most supremerist law of all the lands in the world. Really an odd position to take. Next is anachronistic legal interpretation. Now, this is very similar to constitutional transference. Uh, anachronistic legal interpretation is a term that I came up with where you start all legal uh, or constitutional interpretations, or really any legal interpretation, really, but you start from the assumption that your understanding of a particular constitutional or statutory provision must be the same intent as the people who drafted and ratified that law. And you work backwards from that assumption to find the evidence that will fit the conclusion that you have already committed to, rather than looking for uh, the interpretive evidence to draw up a reasonable conclusion. You're working backwards. So, really, um, Chris has decided that to him, something is only democracy if it operates within a simple, uh, direct majoritarian system where 50% plus one always adds up to morality. Therefore, to the people who drafted and ratified the Constitution, he says because he believes that the guiding principle that he would like to see in the Constitution is this idea that 50% plus one always equals morality, that it's clear that the people who drew up the Constitution had this same view of 50% plus one always equals morality. And he, uh, essentially that uh, he can't uh, see his perception as possibly being wrong. So it's the objective world that is mistaken. It's not him. It's not his job to square his perception with reality. For him, reality must square itself with his perception. Here's an example. Let's say you got a city, it's 60% black and it's 40% white, okay? Here's how you ensure white people stay in charge. Divide the city into four voting districts, right? But you put the entire black population in one district, 60% of the people. And then each district elects one city council member. And voila, now the city council for a majority black city is run by a majority white government. This kind of thing they did all over the South and all over the country. This is what they did all across the South. That's a funny way for a Democrat to say this is precisely what we, the Democratic Party, and only the Democratic Party, did all across the South.
auch auf die Gefahr hin, mich zu wiederholen, die 9. Armee muss zurückgenommen werden, sonst wird sie eingekesselt und aufgerieben. Wir müssen sofort... Die 9. Armee wird nicht zurückgenommen. Sagen Sie, Bosse, er soll kämpfen, wo er steht. Mein Führer, dann ist die 9. Armee verloren. Wir werden die im Norden und Osten bis an den äußeren Verteidigungsring vorstoßende Sowjetverbände in einem rücksichtslosen, mit aller Kraft geführten Gewaltschlag zurückwerfen. Mit welchen Kräften, mein Führer? Die Gruppe Steiner wird von Norden her angreifen und sich mit der 9. Armee vereinigen. Die 9. Armee ist nach Norden hin bewegungsunfähig. Die Feindkräfte übersteigen unsere Mannschaften um ein Zehnfaches. Wink! Soll mit der 12. Armee die Sache unterstützen. Aber, mein Führer, die 12. Armee marschiert nach Westen Richtung Elbe. Dann soll die Armee Kirch machen! Dann entblößen wir die Westfront. Haben Sie noch Zweifel an einem Befehl? Ich glaube! Ich habe mich klar genug ausgedrückt! Alright? And finally, the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that. You cannot just come up with crazy systems of representation to essentially stymie the basic principle of majority rule. Dear Mr. President, there are too many states nowadays. Please eliminate three. I am not a crackpot. And over the course of decades, they strike down representation system after representation system because it doesn't meet the standard they have articulated. Even this city, New York City's longstanding system of government, got struck down in 1989 because we had this borough president system where, like, 200 mil 2 million people in the Bronx and, and 500,000 people in Staten Island each had a borough president. Court's like, can't do it. Now, I do think that it is helpful to keep in mind here that uh, a non-legislative municipal board is, with very few exceptions, not the same thing as the chief executive of a federal republic. But, yeah, maybe I'm just splitting hairs here. But, uh, again, with this entire thing has been to convince you that the reason we need to make these changes is because... Otherwise, racist Republicans are going to steal the election for racist reason because they're racists who hate people who aren't white. Um, but this case, the borough president's case he was just talking about. Now, uh, the uh, appellees uh, in that case uh, were the residents and voters of uh, Brooklyn. Now, they first filed suit uh, in December of 1981 uh, when... Uh, they're the mayor of New York, uh, who was the person who was in charge of overseeing how that board functions, uh, was Democrat Ed Koch, who had just been reelected by a massive landslide victory in all five boroughs. And this was at a time when that entire board of the borough presidents was all Democrats. This was at a time when the New York State Legislature had a Democratic supermajority, and they had a Democratic governor. Now, if we fast forward to when the case concluded in 1989, like he was talking about there, at this point, New York has a Democratic mayor, David Dinkins, uh, who won the popular vote in all five boroughs. And it was... Uh, these Democratic mayors who had the power to make the change to the borough president system, they could have done it. They were the ones who were uh, who declared that this borough system was perfectly fair and refused to make the changes that had been requested by the people of Brooklyn. So if Chris wants us to believe that Republicans are the reason for all of these unfair uh, elections, I'm just I'm flummoxed by the fact that every single uh, example of electoral racism and disenfranchisement of minorities uh, that he has tried to give us so far have solely come at the hands of Democrats. Democrats were the party that uh, stubbornly refused to give up slavery in the South. They were the ones who started a civil war to keep slavery in the South. And when slavery was ended by force, they were the ones who enacted the Black Codes and the Jim Crow laws to essentially keep slavery in force in the South in all but name. And again, when we go back to this, this uh, whole borough 
president's system. We are talking about uh, democratic control on every level of government in New York when that happens. So I just, um, yeah, I, I don't know who these racist Republicans that he's shadowboxing with are, but I just... I, it it seems like if this was a problem with Republicans, he would be able to come up with a few examples of Republicans doing this rather than examples that can only and solely, strictly be blamed on Democrats. The basic principle, one person, one vote, the candidate with the most votes wins. Those are the basic principles that are applied everywhere in the United States, every single election, from dog catcher to state senator to governor, up to two institutions. The two most powerful. United States Senate, right? And this might be for another show, but you may have noticed the same number of senators represent the 40 million people of California and the half a million people of Wyoming. <laughs> Not really one person, one vote E. And then, of course, the other institution, the presidency. Now, take a step back for a second and just ponder how preposterous it is that for the most powerful office, that's the case, right? Like, if you run for class president in the fourth grade, you are elected if and only if you get the most votes. You know, I will give him that. Um, when you think about the absolute fantasy and lie that he just painted for you about how our election system works... If you actually think that that is how things are run, yes, that is absolutely preposterous. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Thank God none of it is true. And that's where we're going to be getting to next. Um, you guys have been very patiently waiting uh, while I kind of uh, hold back on you uh, with talking about what one person, one vote is because it's it's just a lot funnier for me if we go through all of this first, to be perfectly honest. So, um but we're, we're getting to that point. So uh, next up, we're going to be talking about what is one person, one vote. 